was according to his pleasure. It satisfied the desire of his heart. The good ple- it pleased God to do this for you. It pleased God to have you qualified to be his child. It pleased God. It satisfied his desire. And we talked about that. To the praise, to, according to the good pleasure of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So it praises what his grace is like, not anything about you and me. We talked about the fact that we're trophies, we're proof of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Some translations will say by which he bestowed, freely bestowed this grace upon us in the beloved. Last week we looked at in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We talked a little bit about what redemption means. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches, there it is again, of his grace. This is all talking about what God's like. And this I never saw in all the times I just read through it quickly. All the times I, you know, quickly read through it or even, you know, I went through it so many times, I virtually have it memorized. But as I began to go through it slowly, one phrase at a time, the phrases that would jump out at me is, according to the, the, the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's talking about how good He is. It's talking about how gracious He is. The grace which He lavished upon us, we're going to look at in a minute. It talks about how He freely bestowed, freely bestowed, freely bestowed that grace upon us in Christ. So this is talking about how good he is. It's talking about the intention of his heart, of his will, what he wanted to do. And it begins to change how I see God. God's not this lofty, all-powerful being. And he is that I have to talk into doing something for me, that I have to get his attention and jump up and down and say, God, here I am. Do you understand where I am? No, he's had to get my attention to satisfy the desire of his heart. God's always looking at you. His ear's always open to listen to you unless you just close him off. But even then, he'll keep reaching out to you. Never gives up on you. That's his heart, his character, his nature. And we talk a lot about faith, but faith is just really knowing what God's like. Because when you really know somebody, you have confidence in what they're going to do. So if they tell you they'll do something, you just know they'll do it because you have confidence in them because you know what they're like. And I think one of the reasons we struggle so much in faith is we're trying to understand faith as principles and not faith as who God is and what his character is like and what his intentions are, what his heart is like, what his word is like. And I believe it, it hurts him when we're not willing to approach him that way. Not that he's mad at us, but his heart, if you hear his heart reaching out to us, and he wants our hearts to respond back as a father, as a child to the father who loves us and who's done everything already for us. He's proven his love for us by giving his son's life in our place so that we could be a son and daughter with him. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us. That means freely given that we should be called children of God. Wow. So that's kind of what we've talked about up to here. Verse 8, which he made up to abound towards us again in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. We'll see later on that this will of God, this grace of God, was hidden until a time appointed to reveal it, which is when Christ came. Verse 10, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So his ultimate purpose is to gather all of his creation together, together, together in Christ. Which is why the devil tries so hard. He doesn't mind us coming to church as long as we stay separate from one another. As long as we're disconnected from one another. As long as we see each other as other individuals that just happen to come to Faith Christian Center instead of recognizing that we are one in Christ. In Romans chapter 12, when it talks about walking in love with one another, it talks about not speaking evil of one another. It says, and not lying to one another. Because don't you realize you're part of each other? You wouldn't lie to yourself. Then why would we not be honest with each other? Why would we not love each other? This is why when it says, love your brother as yourself, because we are one of the same, and we're one in Christ. And as the pressure comes on the church, and as persecution, if it does arise against the church, and it sure looks as if it's coming, then that's going to make us bind ourselves together, or we won't make it. And I believe we will bind ourselves together. That's when the differences and the, in, in the things that we have used to separate, God, the devil has used to separate us, will fall away. That's what's happened in the past. Verse 11, In Him, and this is what we're going to begin to look at tonight, In Him, we also have something else. In Him, in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance. We're going to talk a little bit tonight about what His prayer is here. He's talking about what we have to look forward to. On Resurrection Day, we talked about the significance of the resurrection, what it means to us. And one of the things that it means to us, we found out, is it validates the gospel. The res- resurrection of Christ from the dead, His empty tomb, proves that the gospel is the truth. It is the, and He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We saw that it also gives us a hope for the future. And we're going to look at that tonight. And the Bible sometimes talks about that hope, and it does here as an inheritance. You understand what an inheritance is? It means you're going to get something. Now, an inheritance typically is when somebody else dies, you're going to get an inheritance because they don't take any of it with them. The question was, how, did they, how much did they leave when they died? And the answer is all of it. <laughs> but there is an inheritance that we have as Christians that's not here in this earth. There's a tendency as you look back at the history of the church, especially back over the last 50, 100 years, and I'm sure if you went back further, you'd find the same truth. There's a tendency for there's kind of a pendulum. You know what a pendulum is? It moves back and forth from one extreme to the other. And, and generations ago, the whole focus in church and the whole focus of the music was when we all get to heaven, what a glorious day it's going to be in the sweet by and by. And because they live for the hope that was promised in the Bible that tells us this, you know, whatever you're going through in this life, it's only temporary. Whatever you're going through in this life, it's only, um, it's only and the Bible says it's a, it's a hand's breath. It's just a quick breath across your hand. That's what our life here is like in terms of time. And as I get older, it helps me to look back and realize, you know, 60, 70, 80, I'm not 80, 60, 70, 80 years, you know, in, in, in terms of eternity, that's nothing. In terms of a thousand years, that's nothing. 
If you want to put the issues of your life in perspective right now, just ask yourself this question. How important are they going to be a thousand years from now? The things we spend so much time worrying about and struggling over, you know, am I going to get my taxes done in time? Am I going to get, you know, my mortgage paid? Am I going to get this paid? A hundred years from now, what's that really going to matter? And yet we spend so much of our energy and time focused on that and worrying about those things, which is what Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about. Why, why, why are you worried about tomorrow? Don't you know your Father knows what you need before you ask? Here's what you need to do. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Why? That's eternal. And all the things that you need here, they'll be added unto you. Don't you know? I mean, look around you. Look at the field, the lilies of the field. I mean, now is a great time to talk about that. I actually got little crocuses coming up in my front yard. I didn't think they'd ever come up. They had to wait for the snow to go away. But look at them. They come up every year. And the grass is actually starting to look a little green. You know, and pretty soon the irises will come out and other flowers will begin to come out. You know, and those things are going to be come out and they come out every year. And then the flowers fall off and they fade away. It's your father, he says, if your father clothes the lilies of the field like that. He said, look at the birds. You know, they're out now. They're excited because they can find seeds and things like that. You know, and he's feeding them. I've never yet heard a bird sitting on my back porch worrying, falling over, having a heart attack, worrying about, I don't know what I'm going to eat next. And Jesus, you know, if, if, if God clo- feeds those birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field which are here today and psh, gone tomorrow, how much more, how much more will he provide for you? He's watching over your needs. So there's an inheritance that Paul talks about, and we're going to look at the significance of this inheritance, uh, at least get into it tonight. Verse 11, In him we also have obtained... You're not going to get, but you have obtained. If you're in Christ, you have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined or preplanned according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You'll find inheritance is mentioned in verse 11. It's mentioned in verse 14, and we're going to see it's in verse 18. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. There it is again. Therefore, because of this, I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what he's praying for. There's three things here. Number one, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So number one, his prayer for them was that God would give them a revelation, an insight, a spiritual revelation of the, of, the, of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, what He's like. Verse 18, number 2, that the eyes of your understanding or your heart, your, spiritual, your spirit, may be enlightened. That's to turn the light on so you can see something. So that you may know what is three things. The hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, 
in verse 19, number 3, and the exceeding greatness of the power, of his power, which he displayed towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go back to verse 11. In him, in Christ, we also have an inheritance. One of the things that's helping me to understand at a greater depth for my own life, my own practical living, one of the things that's giving me a greater depth to understand what I have got, what God has done for me is this phrase. We talked about it, I think it was last week. I think in, in, in the course of the first 14 verses, eight times it says, in him. In him we have an inheritance. In him we have been adopted as children. Through Christ we have been made to be without blame before him in love. Everything we have before God is because we're in Christ. And we talked about that last week. I told you that I used to have this image that, you know, when I got saved, I was seated with him, it says in the next chapter, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But I thought, you know, whereas you've got, you know, God the Father, then Jesus is next to him, and then Peter or John, Paul, I don't know which one, because they had to fight, they sort of fought that out, you know. And, and you all the way down the line until, you know, your Mother Teresa's over there somewhere, and way over there, somewhere northern Massachusetts, is this John. You know, it's nice, you know, I'm there, it's wonderful to be there, and you know, I can kind of see the throne over there. But then one day I got this revelation. That's not what this is talking about. I'm seated with Him, in Him, in heavenly places. So where Christ is seated, I'm seated. Where Christ is seated, you're seated. And that means that whoever Christ is, you are. You are a child of God because you're in Him who is the child of God. You are a son of God because you're in Him who is the Son of God. Therefore, you are the righteousness of God because you're in Christ who is the righteousness of God. You have the ability of Christ because you're in Christ who has that ability. You are loved by the Father as much as He loved Jesus. Why? Because you're in Jesus, you are one with Jesus. So whatever he is, you are right now. Whatever he has, you have right now because you're in him. All you've got to do is be in him and everything that comes with him, you have because you're in him. On the way back, well actually on the way down, my wife and I flew in airplanes, four airplanes. And all we had to do is get in the airplane. Well, I'll tell you a different story. A number of years ago when Fred Price was here, he was here twice, and I had the opportunity to drive him around each time he was here. And, the, and uh, he, the last time, my wife and I took he and Betty to the airport. And they fly, they have a, their own jet that they, because he had a church in, in New York and a church in Los Angeles, and so he commuted by airplane, which they rented. And so we're sitting on this plane. It's nice, you know. It's, you know, it's got nice thick seats, and the, the stewardess comes over and gives you a bottle of Fiji water, and it's, you know, it's nice. And I, We're sitting there, and he says, you know, and my wife says, you know, I've never been to Los Angeles. He says, well, Anita, it's real easy. All you got to do is stay in that seat. Just don't get off, and you'll end up in Los Angeles. Of course, you'll have no luggage, you'll have no place to stay, 
But, but the point is, because she was, we were in the plane, wherever that plane went, we went. Whatever happened to that plane happened to us. So Friday morning, we got in an airplane that took us to Nashville. Actually, took two planes. So wherever that plane went, in fact, before the flight takes off, they announce to you again where it's going. Just in case by some mistake, you got on the wrong flight. Because when they close that door and they take off, you're going wherever the plane goes. And if the plane goes through bumpy airspace, you're going to go through bumpy airspace simply because you're in the plane. And this is what Paul's talking about. Because you're in Christ, whatever he has, you have. Because you're in Christ, whatever God thinks of Christ, he thinks of you. Because you're in Christ, whatever Christ can do, you can do. Doesn't Paul say in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? He didn't say I can do all things on my own because I'm a Christian. He said I can do all things because I'm in the one who can do all things. And whatever happens to the plane, so whatever also Jesus said, because they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. This is why the Christians in the first century got so excited when they were persecuted. That didn't used to make sense to me. Why? Because it was proof to them that they were in Christ. It was proof to them that the world was seeing them as Christ. And Paul talks in Colossians about fulfilling his sufferings, Christ's sufferings, not by going to the cross. It's the persecution that he went through because he's a Christian. In him. In Him we have an inheritance. So that means wherever it says in Him, that's whatever He has, we have. So whatever inheritance He has, we have because we're in Him. And He talks here about bringing everything together in one in verse 10. That in this dispensation of the fullness of times, which has not happened yet, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in Him. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, that just means planned ahead of time, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trust that trusted in Christ may be the praise of His glory. In Him, you trust, He's going to talk about us. So let's look at this. First of all, in verse 11 it says, We have obtained an inheritance according to His predetermined will, so that we should be to the praise of His glory. Often, we, Lafayette Scales talked about it when it was here. Often the Bible talks about us giving, representing the glory of Christ, to the praise of His glory. What does it mean to glorify something? It means to make it bigger, clear to others. So when we get things up on the screen and on the back wall up there, it's going to make those pictures bigger. That's giving glory or revealing the glory of God in that case. So one of the things we are here to do is to, give, is to reveal the glory of God, the character of God, the nature of God, the beauty of God, the generosity of God, the, the, the love of God, the, the amazingness of God. God came down on that mountain in Exodus 19 to reveal His glory, but He came down in a limited form. He revealed His power. He came down in the lightning and the thunder because He wanted them to fear Him and reverence who this God was that was about to give them those Ten Commandments. 
but in the tabernacle over the top of the, of the angels on the Ark of the Covenant, His glory came down. His glory cloud came into the temple of Solomon when it was dedicated, and nobody could stand up. The priests just fell out, all of them. Because God's... He, the, this is so hard to even begin to get into, into English words. The, 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 the word glory also means the weightiness of God, the essence of who God is. God is, has a, is, has a, he is, he is pure life. He is pure love. He is pure energy. He is the Big Bang. Energy comes from God. He's the source of energy. He is absolute matter, mass. There's a weightiness to God, literally, and there's a figurative weightiness to God. And a glory, a shout shining. It says in Revelation that when the new Jerusalem comes down, that they're not going to need to have lights and pull all the money and the lights we're going to put into here and do all that stuff. Why? Because the whole place is going to be lit up by the light that comes from the face of God. And so to the praise of His glory means we're, we're making Him more real to people, more tangible to people in His character and His nature. Go over to me with chapter 3. something, what we're going to see here, you don't hear talked about very much. Verse 8, to me, Paul's talking, who am less than all, the least of all the saints, this grace was given. He's talking about that he was given a revelation directly from Christ to reveal this mystery, which now no longer is a mystery, that the gospel was to be preached to the Gentiles and the purpose of bringing everything together in the end in Christ. That was not revealed to the other apostles, but it was revealed to Paul. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We talked about that a minute ago. And to make all see what is the fellowship. That just means the sharing together of the mystery which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. So that's saying God who created all things and He created it through Christ Jesus. There was a mystery in His creation which until this time He purposely had hidden. The Bible talks, or at least Bible commentaries, talk in terms of different dispensations. There's an Old Testament dispensation there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dispensation in the gospel time. There's a church age dispensation that we're in. There's a dispensation that Revelation talks about. And that just, a good way of understanding that is to think of a dispenser. You go into the, uh, uh, the men's room, or, or the ladies' room, I assume, and they have, uh, they have uh, well, when in the airport restrooms, you, know, you stick your hand onto this soap thing and psh, hopefully you know, it squirts soap out. It dispenses it takes what was in the container already there and he gives you a measure of what's already there. So to dispense something is to take something that's in existence and to hand out or meet out or dispense out a portion of it. And so God has a truth. God has aspects of his character, of his nature, and of his plan. He doesn't reveal all at once. Why? I don't know. He never told me. But one reason I can think is he knows we can't handle everything. We have trouble handling what's dispensed now, let alone what's to come. And so God reveals His plans when He chooses to for whatever reason He chooses to because I have a revelation for you. He's God. 
And that means he can do what he wants according to the good pleasure of his will, not my will or your will. He never consulted me, and I assume he didn't consult you. But he reveals a mystery that he had hidden before through Paul. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold or many-sided wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Listen to this. This is incredible. That the manifold, the many-sided, the, the, you know, like a, you get a, a beautiful diamond or stone. And, the, you know, if you notice, you go into one of the, the jewelry stores in a mall or something like that, and they've got the, the gemstones out there, the diamonds out there, and they always show them on a, when they're going to show them to you on a, on a black velvet thing because it contrasts so that it, the, the, it looks brighter than, not that it is, it just shows the bright. And then they have these lights that are just the right shade of light shining down on it. So it's sparkling out so you can say, wow, that's sharp. You know, of course you get it home, it doesn't look quite the same way. But, you know, you've already paid for it by that time. So the point is the many-sided means a many-faceted. And, and, and manifold kind of implies that if you turn this beautiful aspect of God's character around, the light's going to bounce off of it in many different ways. That by the church, look at this. That's us. God's intent, verse 10, that the many-sided wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. You, you know who they are? They're the angels. They're the angels. Remember when we studied verse chapter 6, we talked about the spiritual warfare and said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. And we saw that what that meant is spiritual beings and some of them are angels Two-thirds of them are angels and one-third of them are demons. And God's, Paul's, the the mystery that God revealed to Paul through Christ was that when this age to come, God is going to reveal to the angels and perhaps the demons the many-sided wisdom of God by showing them, us. That's why I've said before, you and I are trophies. We are evidence when I taught uh, renewing the mind, which I may teach again this year. I taught renewing the mind. There's a place where Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we might prove the good and re- that we should be transformed not by the renewing of our mind. We should not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we might prove something. What? What is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? And I went over and I would take this scripture and show the, God's purpose is in the, all in that in the next dispensation, in the next age, when we're all in heaven, God's going to have a great trial. Now, whether it's going to be set up like this, I don't know. But He's going to prove something, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. I, I my guess is He's going to prove to the principalities and powers that rebelled against Him, to Satan that says I'm going to be like Him, and He thought being like Him was being more powerful. He thought the aspect of God that was the one to be reached after was God's power. But what God's going to show, I believe, in that time is not what His power will do, but God's going to show what His love will do. God's going to prove 
to the principalities and powers in heavenly places that can't begin to understand that kind of thinking. What his love will do. How far his love will go down. And the evidence, the witnesses that God's going to use to prove this is you and me. And it's not how faithful you are or how good I've been, but it's what God's grace and mercy could do with a mess like you and a mess like me. God's going to hold us up and say, this is what they were like. This is what you saw in them. This is what you paraded before me. This is what you accused me of. Because the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. In that trial, he's going to make accusations. But they were this, and they said that, and they failed this, and they failed at this, and they didn't do this, and they didn't do this promise. God's going to say, okay, yeah, you finished yet? Let me show you how far my love was willing to go for them. Because I paid the price that made them clean. God's going to use your life and my life, your testimony and my testimony. So he says in Revelation 12, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The testimony before Christ, before this great tribunal, is not how good I was. Look how faithful I was. Oh, I took Faith Christian Center from here and did this. I did this and I did that. That's not what the testimony of. The testimony of... I was lost, and now I'm found. I was a mess, and I got cleaned up and saved. It's the testimony of His grace, of His goodness, of His love, and how far it will go. This is why Paul goes on later on in this chapter, and his second prayer in this, in this letter is that, Father, that you would strengthen them by your Holy Spirit in their inner man with might, so that Christ may actually be able to live in them, that being rooted and grounded in this love, we may all come to know, together with all the saints, oh, this is so good, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. In other words, how far wide his love will go to get somebody how high his love will go, how deep down into the muck and mire his love will go, that we might come to know together with all the saints the extent of his love. Wow. I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, we're part of some amazing thing that is not going to end when this age ends. It's going to begin. Because there is an eternity out there. There is an inheritance out there. And so the first thing we see is that this inheritance is to the praise of His glory. Now go over to chapter 1, verse 14. Verse 12 talks about the first apostles. It said, We who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13 says, In Him you also trusted. Now he's talking about us. After you heard the word of truth. So when you heard the word of truth, it says, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word sealed there, so when you came to Christ, when you accepted Him, the way you became born again 
was God took his spirit and breathed him into you. Just as God took his own breath and breathed it into that first man and he became alive, God took his breath, his spirit, his, his, his pneuma is the Greek word. The Greek word pneuma means spirit, wind, or breath, either, and they're interchangeable. God breathed into you His breath of life, the Holy Spirit, and you became a spiritually alive being. That's how you were born again. And then Ezekiel says God took His own Spirit and He put Him in you. He's the author of this book. I remember when I was first saved, you went through a time for a few weeks afterwards, well, was I really saved or not? Or was that just some experience I went through one night? Ever have that thought go through your head? And God so good, because I was reading this book, and I came to verse 13. And it says, having been believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which means his spirit was put in me as a proof, as a mark, that I now belong to him. The word sealed has two meanings to it. One of the meanings is to wrap up in a way that like a shrink wrap, you know, you go to buy meat nowadays in the grocery store. You, they let it sit out there. Why? Because the air can't get at it because they shrink wrap it. And now they shrink wrap everything. You go to buy a pair of scissors, they're shrink wrapped. I don't know how some people get those. Th- I don't go on that. Though some of these things are encased in such hard plastic. It's just fr- I don't, I'm trying to get the scissors out, and the, I need scissors to get the things out. Anyway, that's my. So it means being sealed into the point of you're being protected from outside environment. But it also means to be branded or marked as belonging to. Cowboy movies were based, some of the original ones, on cattle drives, you know, where they, and the idea is, you know, people from the Circle J Ranch and people from the Bar A Ranch or whatever, they're going to go a thousand miles north of Chicago to the, to the stockyards, and safety is in numbers, so they come together and they mix all the herds together. Well, how are we going to know when we get there that this is my steer and that's your steer? They brand them. They take the branding, the, the logo of that ranch, and with a hot branding iron, they sear it into the, the, the rump of, the, of that steer. So when they all get mixed together, when they get to the stockyards, they can sec- settle, separate out your cattle from my cattle. So they're branded, which means that that's belongs to me. They get mixed up with everybody else's, but I can tell what's mine because it belongs to me because it has my mark on it. And what this is saying is that in the spirit realm, you can't see it with your natural eyes, but if you can see in the spirit realm, you can see everyone that's a Christian because they're marked because the Spirit of God is in them. Because the Spirit of God is in them. And then I realized, wait a minute. Before the night I gave my life to the Lord, I couldn't understand this book. I mean, I could read the words, but it didn't have any life to me. It didn't. And ever since that night, I couldn't put it down. I'd come home, everybody get to bed. I couldn't wait for everybody to go to bed because I wanted to open my Bible. And I'd sit there and have to make myself go to bed at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, just devouring this thing. Something happened on the inside of me, and I realized, oh, the author's now inside of me. The author's now inside of me. Okay. Verse 14 who is the guarantee, the Spirit of God in you, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory again. So verse 14 is saying that the Spirit of God is not only God's mark on you that you belong to Him, but He's also a guarantee to us 
God doesn't need the guarantee. He can see in the spirit realm. But we need a guarantee in this realm of what? A guarantee of the inheritance that has been given to us because you can't see the inheritance. It's not in our possession yet. Now, what is a guarantee? What is a, another translation says earnest money. The Greek word is actually the word arabon, which is the equivalent of an engagement ring. Somebody's excited about that. <laughs> now, see, ladies, he can make all kinds of promises to you. Oh, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Oh, I love you so much. Oh, I want to spend the rest of my life together with you. And you say, oh, that's so nice. I love to hear those words, but... <laughs> Somehow, when he's come across with the money and he's gone to the jewelry store, and he puts that rock on your hand, there's a deeper commitment. Because something's been given that's, listen carefully, something that's been given that's tangible evidence of the future performance of the fullness of that commitment. Another term that's sometimes used is deposit or earnest money. If you've ever bought a house, you go to look at the house, maybe through a, a realtor. Usually it's going to be through a realtor. And, you know, you, you, you know, so you know what? I think I want to make an offer on this house. And they say, okay, submit an offer. But with the offer, they're going to want to check because they won't even present it without a check. And now the buyer, the seller accepts your offer. It comes time to go into the permanent ag- the agreement to buy the house. That's still not the house. That's the agreement we're going to buy the house called a purchase and sale agreement. And with that, you give what's called a down payment or a deposit. And that's always going to be a percentage of the final purchase price. So what you've done, listen carefully. Your intention, oh, I want to, I want, oh, I love that house. It's just what we've wanted. Oh, boy. You know, now we've got to figure out how to buy it. All right. So we're going to get a, maybe have to get a loan. We'll do this. Okay. But the, I, I really want this house so much. And the seller says, well, that's really nice. You know, let's just pick a price. Space can be $200,000. I don't know whether that's enough or not. What's $200,000? You know, well, it's $200,000. Oh, that's no problem. We want to buy this house. That's great. Good. When can we move in? Well, wait a minute. Slow down. I need to see the money. I'm not going to turn this house over to you without seeing the $200,000. Well, we have to do some things in the meantime. We've got to have check the title out. We have to have some inspections done. I, I'm going to have to go get a mortgage. I've got to do these things. But I don't want you to go sell us to somebody else. So I want to show you, prove to you, that I'm serious about what I'm going to do. So I'm going to give you a percentage of that purchase price now. So I'm going to give you 10%, $20,000. I'm going to let go. I'm going to write that check. It's going to come out of my account, be held in escrow either by the realtor or by you, so that I've let go of that. It's now in your control to guarantee that I'm going to give you the rest of the money. So it's always of the same material that you're going to give the balance of. So I don't go in and bring them, you know, $20,000 worth of clothing. Or I don't just drop a car off that's worth $20,000 They want money because what I promised is to pay them money. So it's the same kind, and it's in a percentage to prove to them that I'm going to give you the rest of them. 
It's a security to know that the rest of it's coming. That's what that word means. So what this is saying is God has promised you an inheritance. God has promised you in Christ an inheritance. We're going to talk about what it is in a minute. God's promised you an inheritance, and because it's not here yet, God wants you to have a confidence and assurance that you can know it's coming. So much so that you can act now as if that inheritance is already yours. Imagine this. Imagine you were growing up 50 years ago or so. Maybe it was longer than that. And you, you know, you're, you know, seven, eight years of age, and you realize after you begin to visit some of your friends that their house isn't like yours. And then one day you begin to understand that the, your father's last name has a significance that others don't have because your last name is Rockefeller. And your father's John D. At that point, the richest man in the world. Now, he had a practice with his sons, with his children, that he had them all, when they got to be teenagers, work in one of their company factories under a different name. And they started at the lowest possible position. And the only person in that factory or plant that knew who they really were was the plant manager, and if they told anybody, they'd lose their job. Because dad wanted them to know what it was like to work from the bottom up. But you could be Nelson or one of the other Rockefeller kids. And you could be, you know, you could be John Smith pushing a broom with everybody else pushing a broom. And although they treated you like you were John Smith, and they treated you, somewhere inside you knew eventually, someday, I may be pushing dirt with a broom in the, in, the, in, the, in the receiving room, but someday I know I'm not going to be pushing a broom in the receiving room forever. I know someday I'm going to be the owner of this place. Not today. Today I'm pushing a broom. Today i got to go to my locker, take my work clothes off under this locker that's got John J. Smith on it and go and punch a clock, you know, for whatever was 20 cents an hour, whatever it was back then, for minimum wage, if they didn't have it back then, for dirt pay, just like everybody else was. But that, that didn't matter, because I knew that was temporary. I knew someday, someday, I wasn't going to be punching this clock. I was going to own the place. Why did I know that? Because I know who my father is. And I know because of who my father is, this is my inheritance. So I can go through what i got to go through. I can put up with all the malarkey. I can put up with the long hours. Because I, I have a hope. I have a hope out there that it's not always going to be like this. So I govern my affairs. I'm learning by what I'm doing. I'm not just stuck, you know, putting my hours in. I'm just trying to earn a paycheck. I'm studying what's going on here because I'm learning how this place worked from the bottom up because someday I'm going to own this place. And this is what we miss as a church. This is what we miss as believers. We just go through our life one day after another. Tuesday, then it's Wednesday, then it's Thursday, then it's Friday, then it's Saturday. 
Then it's Sunday. Now we turn around and now it's going to be Monday. And just go one day after another day, living one day without any purpose, without any vision for where it's headed. Don't you understand? You have an inheritance eternal in the heavens. Don't you understand? You are a child of the living God. Don't you understand? If the Rockefeller is dirt cheap compared to our father. We should be looking around. What do I have to learn? Because the Bible tells us in Colossians, in 1 Corinthians, it says, don't you understand? Why are you going to court to settle your disputes? He says, don't you understand? That's a failure. If you can't work it out among yourself, don't you realize in the next next age, you're going to be sitting in judge over angels. We've got things to learn down here. We've got, oh, you know we got to learn? Because in any plan like that, there's certain, there's a handbook of how things operate. So, you know, little Nelson would have been given a handbook. This is how the rules of how we operate. This is when the, this is when you show up. This is when the coffee breaks occur. This is when, but also there are unwritten rules in every place of work. I know that's what it says, but this is what we really do. And when you start a job, you begin to learn those things because you learn them from other people. We're supposed to be here learning the rules of the kingdom because we're going to be governing under the rules of the kingdom in our inheritance and and when we come into the fullness that God has for us. Well, what are the rules of the kingdom? Read Matthew 6. Read Matthew 5. Blessed. Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 are are the employee handbook of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't mean they don't have anything. That means that they're humble. They're not proud and arrogant. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. That means it'll be theirs. So we need to be here learning how the kingdom operates. Because in our inheritance, in the purpose that God ultimately has for us, we're going to be operating under those principles and carrying them out. And that's the hope that's set before us. We've got to learn to live our lives, not, oh, my life is going to be over at 50, 60, 70, 80. No, 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 no. This is an assignment. It's a training session. This is like orientation for heaven. It really is. But the devil sold us on living. This is all there is to life. This is what it's all about. No. Unless you're in Christ, not in Christ that it's all that it is about. This is the best it's ever going to get. Okay, we've got to bring this down to a close. The guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the guarantee is there until the fullness comes. And what's the fullness? It's the redemption of the purchased possession. What's he talking about? Well, it's what we talked about on Resurrection Day. There are three basic steps as a Christian to our growth. There are three terms that are used. The first is justification. That's a theological term, but what that basically means is when you came to Christ, you were given the gift of righteousness. You were made just in God's eyes. Your legal position before God is you are now holy without blame because you're in Christ. 
but every one of us has messed up since we did that, at least once. And if you say you didn't, you just lied, and you just did. So the next phase is called sanctification. The word sanctify comes from a Greek word which means to be set apart, agios, to set up, be set apart. And what that means is that's, that we, the Spirit of God inside of us begins to work a grace in our lives where we begin to act more like the Christ who is in us. That's Christ actually dwelling in us. He's in you, but He wants to live His life through you. And by doing that, it's two basic things. So that He begins to, to act His character and nature through you and His will through you. And the second thing is that the Spirit of God begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit in you, to begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and the rest of those. That's the process of sanctification, and that's a process that begins when you're saved, and the Spirit of God, as long as you'll walk in communion with Him, will begin to produce this work in your life. God who is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. He will begin a good work in you, will complete it into the day of Christ. And then the third part is called glorification. And that is when the Romans 8, 11 becomes true. If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also quicken or make alive your mortal body. And that's when the Spirit of God, the power of the resurrection, comes out of you, because it's going to come out of you, not down out of heaven, and transforms this mortal body into the immortal body that Christ displayed for the 40 days He walked on this earth after He was raised from the dead. And that's when Paul talks about, in a number of places, the completion of our salvation. Some places it almost sounds as if, well, I'm not fully saved yet. Well, your spirit is, and your soul's in the process. That's the sanctification And the glorification is your body. And so the Spirit of God is the down payment of the purchased possession. So you've been purchased. You've been bought with a price. But your body's not yet redeemed. That's why we have to drag it around, clean it up, and it's still subject to sickness of this world. God will heal it, but it's still subject to those things. But the end result God has is that all of you is transformed into the image of Christ. Spirit, soul, and body. So the Spirit of God is the down payment of that process. Okay. Verse 18. This is his prayer. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and what is exceeding greatness of the power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. His prayer here is that we might know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That we might know it's already there. It's yours. But we don't know it yet. We haven't seen it yet. It's not real to us. And so Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would make real to us the glory of not just the, pre- the existence, the, the glory, the beauty, the power, the weightiness of the inheritance that we have together with all the saints. This is the hope of the church. And this is what you don't hear t- 
taught very much. There was a generation where everything was talking about the, the blessed hope that we have. And now we've come through a time when we've learned that, that God provides things for us here. God will prosper you. He'll heal you. And we've got the church got so focused on the here and now that we lost our perspective that this is not everything that there is. And that the hope, the hope that we have is not in this life. Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if we hope in this life only, then we're of all people to be miserable, all people to be pitied. If this is the only hope we have. There is hope here, but the real hope isn't here. I'll just give you a couple of things and then we'll have to end for tonight. The great hope that Christians have is not in this life. If you're basing your hope on this life, you are going to be disappointed because this life will end. I mean, you could be Bill Gates and you could have everything you ever wanted. You could be in perfect health and every dream you've ever had could come true. But if that's your hope, it's still going to all end. It's all going to come to an end. And most of us try living our life avoiding that fact. But the reality is, and I've heard this taught before, that we're only really prepared to live when you're prepared to die. You're only really prepared to enjoy life when you're not trying to hold on to it, when you're willing to let it go. The hope that that early church had, the hope that Paul had, the hope that kept him going through all the difficulties that he went through, the hope that caused him to come to the end of his race, of course, and say, I've finished my race. I've finished with joy. There's laid before me a crown of righteousness, not just only for me, but for all, that's all, for all those who are looking forward to his coming looking forward to the hope. You want to know what that hope is? We'll have to look at it next time. If I get into it now, we'll be here for another half hour and still won't do it justice. So next time we're going to look at the hope, the hope that is set before us, the hope of his calling. Notice Paul had to pray. And this is what I've been praying for years. Paul had to pray, God, open the eyes of their understanding they would see, not just hear, not just hear the pastor talk about, but see to the point that they would reach out for, see to the point that it would motivate them, see to the point that it's when they got up in the morning, regardless of how they felt, that's what got them going in the morning. That's what kept them going. When everything was going wrong, it still kept them going. When things didn't work the way they thought they ought to work, I don't care, the Word of God's still the truth, because my hope's not in the circumstances of this life. My hope's not in what happens in, what, in, in ISIS or in the, on CNN. My hope's not in the stock market. My hope's not even in my health. I believe in good health, but my hope's not in that. My hope's not in this life at all. Because if your hope is, it's not the biblical hope. And the word hope, by the way, we did a series a year or so ago on hope. The word hope doesn't mean hope like, I hope so. It means a confident, steadfast expectation. I'm looking for it. They were looking for Jesus to come back. They were looking for it to happen any moment. They were expecting this hope to occur for them right now. They lived every day as if it was going to happen that day. That's what that word means. That's confident of it. And that's the same hope you and I have. We'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you for the word of God. The hope that's laid before us. We thank you for the precious Holy Spirit.
who is the guarantee, the tangible evidence that all that you promised of the inheritance that we have is true. And we pray tonight together with the Apostle Paul that he prayed for the church at Ephesus. And so it's a valid prayer that we can pray for Faith Christian Center, for all those that are here tonight and those that aren't here tonight, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus and the glory of the inheritance that we have together with all the saints and the exceeding greatness of the power that you displayed towards us when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Father, it's in your word. We can ask you for it. And your word goes on to say that if we ask anything that's in accordance with your will, you hear us. And if you hear us, we know we have the request that's made known of us to you. And so we count it as done and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.